This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm the editor-in-chief, Pooja Patel. And this week, we have a special episode for you. I recently sat down with the folks at Wired for their podcast, Have a Nice Future. I spoke with Wired editor-in-chief Gideon Litchfield and their senior writer, Lauren Good, about artificial intelligence and the future of music. If you've been paying any attention, you've probably noticed that AI is creeping into everything. And with the recent scandals involving AI-generated songs that use vocals from Eminem, Drake, and The Weeknd, it's front and center in music, too. On this episode of Have a Nice Future, we talk about how AI music is made and how it's affecting artists and the music industry, too. I sound a bit manic. Okay. (laughs) Hi, I'm Lauren Good. And I'm Gideon Litchfield. And this is Have a Nice Future, a show about how fast everything is changing. Each week, we talk to someone with big, audacious ideas about the future. And we ask them, is this the future we want? This week, we're talking about how generative AI is shaking up music with Pooja Patel, the editor-in-chief of the music site Pitchfork. I think people are getting more and more particular about having very clear, specific tastes and also about not letting the computer trick them. Gideon, I wanted to start the show off a little bit differently today. Okay. It's time for a pop quiz. Oh, no. (laughs) So you are the editor-in-chief here at Wired, and you've been talking a lot about AI. So I wanted to see how good you are at telling regular human-made music apart from AI-generated music. I mean, I can barely tell music by one human apart from another sometimes. So, uh, you know, you might be disappointed, but I will do my best. Okay, here's the first track. Let's hear the second one. First, I'm curious if you know who the artist is. I have no idea. <laughs> None whatsoever. Gideon, I'm, I'm really not so- a card-carrying member of the Beehive, are I you? I am so not. That was Beyonce. Okay. But which one was actually Beyonce? So d- was one of those definitely AI and the other one was really Beyonce? Yes. Uh, wow. Um, I'm going to say the first one was AI just because I like the second one better. That is correct. Okay. All right. So taste actually plays a part here. <laughs> you get to keep your job as the editor-in-chief of Wired. Thank God. I was so uh, what, worried. What about, the, what about the second one did you like more? Um... Here I'm going to have to use like musicy words that I don't know the meaning of, but I just felt like it was, I don't know, the the sounds were f- more balanced somehow, the more harmonic, more, I, I'm making crap up here. Uh, I just liked the sounds better. They felt more like a thought had gone into that, into that song. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Let's move on to the second pair, which I think is going to be a little bit more challenging. All right, here's the first track. Okay, here's the second one. Okay, 
I'm going to say that the female voice is the AI-generated one, just because it sounded a little more auto-tuned to me. But honestly, if you'd played both of those songs somewhere and I didn't know that one of them had to be AI-generated, I would have just said they were both human. You are correct. The female voice is AI-generated. The first one was real. That was actually Drake. Okay, so I may be completely useless at music, but at least I can tell an, an AI from a human when they're singing. That's something. Yes. That's, that's what yes, the editor of Wired should be able to do, right? Okay, so this next pair is interesting because this person has really been at the forefront of what I'll call the if you can't beat them, join them movement. So I'm tipping you off a bit. This is Grimes. <laughs> okay, let's hear two tracks and you can determine which one is real and which one is not. This is a complete coin toss for me. I honestly have no idea which one. So saying one of those songs is an actual Grimes song and the other one is something that somebody made using Grimes' voice. Yes? Yes. It is a tough one. As someone who really isn't familiar with Grimes' works, honestly don't know which one of those is which. Yeah, her sound is typically a very ethereal, kind of manufactured manic pixie sound. The second one felt more manic pixie to me. (laughs) And so does that mean that's really her? Yes. You are correct. Wow. Three out of three. You actually did quite well. Yeah, you were using like context clues and you were right. You probably did great on the SATs. <laughs> did they have those in the UK? No, we didn't have SATs. I was good at university, yes. <laughs> and I could see why. I'm impressed. You got them all right. I mean, not thanks to actually knowing anything about music, I have to say. I, I feel like I have a decent ear because I did play instruments when I was a kid, but um, it was just as much guesswork as anything else. I wouldn't have been surprised if I got them all wrong. But I think you did a really good job of using context clues to figure out which way was up or which song was real. And honestly, that's my biggest question right now. Like, what is real? If something is heavily auto-tuned or has a lot of artificial elements in it, does that make it quote unquote fake? Or is it only fake when it's being generated as something totally new without any kind of human participation? And like, what does this mean for the future of music? I guess there are degrees of fake, right? Well, all of this is really complicated stuff, and that's why I'm very excited for today's guest. We've asked Pooja Patel to join us on Have a Nice Future this week. She's the editor-in-chief of Pitchfork, which, like Wired, is a part of Condé Nast. That's right. And as well as running Pitchfork, she hosts her own weekly podcast, The Pitchfork Review, where she and her colleagues review music, of course. Now, we brought Pooja on the show because a few weeks ago, it became really apparent that AI music was taking over our feeds. A new song by Drake and The Weeknd dropped, and everyone was talking about it. Because it wasn't actually by Drake or The Weeknd. Someone had used AI to create the song entirely anew. And honestly, it fooled a lot of people. Well, maybe not you, Gideon. Uh, I, I mean, I probably wouldn't have even been able to tell you who Drake or The Weeknd was at that point. So uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> shortly, shortly after that, Grimes announced that she'd be allowing her fans to create their own AI-generated songs using her voice and that she would split any revenue with them 
And even though Gideon and I are not music nerds, it made us think a lot about what our AI music future looks like. I mean, you don't have to be a music nerd to realize there's a lot at stake here for the established artists, for the up and coming ones, for the record labels, for the streaming services and for the rest of us who just like to listen. Yeah. And since there's so much ground to cover, today's entire episode is going to be a conversation with Pooja. And that's coming up right after the break. The Oscars are almost upon us, which means now is the time to start catching up on all of the buzz from this year's award season. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, I mean, that's how you know you really love and trust and respect someone is that we can absolutely fight. Paul Giamatti. It's like, holy f- <laughs> He just nailed the f- out of that. Sorry. And America Ferreira. It's like yeah. people standing around for hours just waiting to, like, be a part of this cultural moment. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Pooja, thank you for joining us here on Have a Nice Future. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk AI. Pooja, just to kick us off, what is AI-generated music? How is it different from remixes and stems and AI-enhanced music of the recent past? The thing is, is that it's not so different from a lot of that because AI is infiltrating every single aspect of music. So when you think about what makes up a song that has AI in it, there are tools that range from like... OpenAI, this is my favorite story, actually, of recent history, OpenAI slash Jukebox, where there's this, I don't know if you're familiar with David Guetta, who is this like festival EDM forward DJ. And there's this video of him like giddily explaining how he got Eminem to work with him on this song that he debuted at a festival. And what he did was he used ChatGPT to write lyrics in the style of Eminem. And then he used a different program to input those lyrics that then were delivered in the sound of Eminem's voice. This is the future rave sound. I'm getting lost in an underground. And then he debuted that song at a festival and he was just like, well, damn, isn't this brilliant? Um, So that's like the open AI version of it. And then there's the kind of more complicated version, which is tied to how that weekend Drake song, Heart on My Sleeve, was released, which is where a person had basically created a library of sounds using Drake's voice and using the weekend's voice and then made his own melody made his own beat, and then used his library to create a version of what might sound like Drake or might sound like The Weeknd to create an entire new song. So there's just like one million different ways to use this technology. Some feel a little more aggressive than others. Um, 
some have, I think, higher ethical concerns than others. And I will say this isn't necessarily new. There have been musicians doing this sort of interpolation and manipulation of existing recording for a very, very long time. I think that it is just now so easily accessible to the public that has made it a little more confounding and concerting and strange for everyone. All right. So people are like, seem to be freaking out about the idea that there might be a million songs out there all using Drake's voice and none of them sung by Drake. But what, if anything, should people be freaked out about here? What do you think are the concerns and what are not the concerns? I mean, I think this is the same concern that has been prevalent in art since the dawn of time. Um, The bigger concern is around ownership. And respectfully, like, I don't want to hear 20,000 Drake songs. Like, I don't care about that. I don't care about half of Drake's songs that already exist that are made by him. So I don't see it becoming like a value proposition in a way that supports the overall brand of the artist in a financial or recognition way. And I think the, the big freak out and the big existential crisis here really is about money and ownership. But like, but for whom? Because right, as I think as what you're saying is, if a million people make copies of Drake songs, it won't make Drake any richer, and it won't make mm-hmm. him any poorer. Uh, and the vast majority of those songs, nobody will want to listen to. And even the good ones, <laughs> no, even the good ones, nobody's going to say, oh, wow, what an amazing original song, because it will basically be a, an incarnation of Drake, like without Drake, right. that song wouldn't exist. None of what right, was great about right. it would exist. So all of the stuff that is copied off Drake or a famous artist like that seems like it's an irrelevance mm-hmm. in some sense. I mean, now we're we're broaching the subject of like copyright. <laughs> and since the dawn of time, people have been questioning whether like a sample is something that is worth being fought over. Part of the reason this is so sticky is because the law is centered to protect humans. When we were reporting about this at Pitchfork, I think a month ago, the Copyright Office issued some new declaration around AI. And they basically said that something can be protected by copyright if it had immediate human interaction with it, which meant like it was created by a human. And where that then becomes tricky is because if you significantly manipulated AI as a human to create something that sounds like a lot of other things that still is protected by copyright, but we haven't seen something go to court. I think the bigger conversation around AI is around AI training and copyright. Like if you as a person are training a computer to be something else using a source library of an artist, like that is the bigger copyright question right now. Mm -hmm. Because then the computer, or in this case, the model, becomes the product of human authorship. Whereas the thing itself that's spit out by AI might not be the product of human authorship, which would be protected by copyright law. Right. But then also, let's say that you were training the model using Drake's vocals and without Drake's consent. Um, that becomes the point of contention. Is there anything that you're excited for in the world of AI-generated music? I mean, it sounds like mostly so far we're talking about 
the musical equivalent of fan fiction, mm-hmm. um, and which is great. And you know, the fan fiction universe is uh, is a wonderful and vibrant thing. But is there anything for genuine musical creativity, new forms of music, uh, new ways for original artists to emerge that you think AI enables? Absolutely. I mean, I think we underestimate how much musicians are using this already. Just from a financial perspective, like it opens up doors for people who are under-resourced, who aren't signed to a label, who don't have the financial backing to create something in the way that they're able to. I was reading an interview with a producer once um, who basically said, you know, I am a musician searching for a voice. You know, my all of my work is behind the scenes. I'm like constantly looking for the perfect singer and vocalist to be in my music. If I can help source my ideal voice, like that changes what I'm able to create and how I'm able to think. And that to me sounds wild. (laughs) But also, I think that just like with the advent of anything, there's lots of opportunity here. What about the artists who are embracing this by saying they'll do a rev share with people Mm -hmm. who creatively use their voice? Grimes comes to mind. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that? So Grimes is leading the path forward for this. Before we talk Grimes, I do want to shout out Holly Herndon, who is this like academic slash electronic musician she really did this first or did this like early in in my mind. But Grimes has basically declared that she will make available her voice to anyone who wants to use it. And that music would be able to be uploaded to any streaming platform under the moniker Grimes AI1. And any royalties that would come from that music, which she would be able to track because of the way that those stems and such are coded, would be split down the middle. This is part of Grimes's larger philosophy around, you know, the idea that technology and humanism are in conversation, that music is a conversation with audiences, that there should not be copywriting, and like copywriting is a form of gatekeeping. So her her platform, Elf Tech, I'm smiling. (laughs) We can can hear the smile. It's an audible smile. So her her platform, Elf Tech, basically seeks to allow anyone to use any of her vocals in any of their music. Um, I think it's a commendable, like, act. I, again, ask who wants to hear 10,000 crime songs. Um, But I'm curious to see how that moves forward. I mean, there's no downside for her, I think. Yeah, if anything, it helps her. Yeah, 100%. Well, maybe it helps her in terms of exposure. It certainly helps her in terms of, you know, being the first to do this. Mm -hmm. And as you say, maybe nobody wants to hear 10,000 crime songs, but what if some people do and are willing to pay for it? Then, Then she wins and so do the creators. Well, I think the the bigger possible like lucrative success there is something goes viral or something becomes a streaming hit or something makes it onto the chart. I think she's opening up business opportunities for herself because in the chance that one of those 10,000 songs lands, that that changes things for her too. Can we talk about the kind of the other end of the music industry? I have a cousin who is a musician 
he made some of his living from uh, recording, you know, music, writing music for advertising jingles and things like that. And I think a lot of a lot of working musicians are doing that sort of thing. Do you think those livelihoods are threatened by generative AI? Is it, you know, in, in much the way that people are worried that stock photography is going to go uh, the way of the dodo because it's just really easy to generate generic images that can be dropped into to simple things? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the first the first to go. Um, again, speculating here, but there was a musician who talked to Pitchfork who basically said that a lot of these working musicians couldn't make money, especially in the pandemic, from live gigs anymore, from releasing new records. And so much of their work became tied to sync music, exactly like you're saying, Gideon, um, or writing music for TV, like films, commercials, so on and so forth. But the interesting thing that was being talked about then is uh, how much of that work was expected to be free or at a much lower cost than what writing and selling your own music would get you back. So I believe the platform is called Amper, but there is an AI platform that is specifically making music to soundtrack anything from home videos to commercials to trailers for movies to anything else. And you are simply manipulating the vibes, <laughs> the vibes and the instruments there. Do you worry about what that means for people who try to get into music as a profession? Because if, you know, is, does that close off an avenue that people might have followed in the past in the hope of achieving stardom? Yeah, I think that this is all, this is kind of why the conversation around ownership is looming so large, because I think that I don't know that people were making very much money from that to begin with. It seems like there's a lot to unpack here about how this affects the artists. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense of how this is affecting the streaming platforms? I will honestly say that streaming, as always, has no idea what they're doing. <laughs> say more about that. Um, okay, so maybe you saw this. Boomy, which is one of those AI music generators, has uploaded something like 14 million songs to Spotify or has created about 14 million songs of which many, many, many have made it onto Spotify. And Spotify recently was like on the declared this mission to say, we're diligently working toward removing these like AI created songs that have been uploaded because our solidarity is with like human creators. <laughs> Within the span of like several weeks that backpedaled and now Spotify and Boomi are in contract negotiations for how to upload AI music into Spotify. I mean, I imagine in the long term, it's actually quite bad for a company like Spotify to have tons of sludge on its platforms, even if they got a short term boost in number of tracks or listeners because the competition between the streaming platforms is so fierce and if customers are paying $10 a month, they want a high-quality experience. And a lot of people still want to listen to what they might consider traditional music, right? Like, does it, I, I can't see how it benefits Spotify in the long term to just become the platform for AI-generated tracks. I mean, the same thing happened with YouTube, I think, with Jay-Z a couple of years ago when some clever coder had figured out how to make Jay-Z read anything 
and had built like a vocal library of Jay-Z and had him reading Shakespeare and other things and had uploaded these files to YouTube and they successfully took them down for a couple of days and then they appeared again. And basically YouTube was like, there is no copyright infringement here. We can't do anything about this. And so I don't know that they have figured this out yet. Are you optimistic about any part of this? <laughs> I mean, I'm optimistic about the opportunity that it presents to musicians who want to use it for good. <laughs> um, what is using so, it for good? So musicians who want to use the models to help their own work um, that is still created by them. So, I, I mean... I like the idea of artists being able to have a sounding board for their own work. Right. So there's AI as the kind of artistic amanuensis. Mm-hmm. I just had to throw that word in there. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, it's the same story across all of these fields that AI touches. There are people who are good at a thing, and then they could use AI to become even better at that thing or at least more productive at that thing. And then there are people who don't know how to do the thing, and then they, and they can use AI to perform a cheap imitation of the thing. Right. I think the fear is that all the people who are performing the cheap imitations using AI will somehow crowd out a lot of the work being done by the people who have actual skills. Yes. Um, and then there's a question of, well, maybe maybe that won't work out. Maybe most of the cheap imitations are actually not that good, not good enough. And so people with skills will net overall benefit. But I think a lot of it ends up coming down to who controls the tools and who has the power to implement them. But but wait, if, if we can step back for a moment and I can just be philosophical. Yeah. Why do we need an AI website that generates 14 million tracks and puts them on Spotify? Why do we need to be constantly improving? This makes me think of um, our New Yorker colleague, Gia Tolentino's essay, Always Be Optimizing. Why is it that, I mean, computers don't have limits. They do, but they exist to keep getting better and better and better. And we as humans and as human writers and editors and artists, like we do actually have limits, So, like, at what point do we just say, like, we can't always buy into the hype of, like, this thing, this tech tool is going to make us so much better and faster and optimize us? Well, I think that's driven by the logic of capitalism, isn't it? It is. It is because because the platforms and the labels and all of these much larger entities are ultimately what are going to make more money from this. Right. They're driving the optimization and the need to produce more and more and more. I I understand where you're, like, existential um, (laughs) (laughs) angst angst is crisis? because because Mid i share podcast it. crisis yeah i share it you know have you heard of the human artistry campaign you heard about this no so the human artistry campaign is basically a collective of organizations um across creative communities it is i mean i think like 60 plus of these which includes like actors publishers songwriters it's a massive like effort specifically tied to AI because we're all shared in this existential spiral, right? And so they are kind of campaigning and lobbying and going to, to, to court to speak about the like parameters within which AI should be considered as it pertains to the law. And all of that is tied to like the basic return to the human coming first. (laughs) And they have this like set of principles that they are all kind of like petitioning towards and different organizations have all signed on and agreed with um, that are basically just like 
the law should be human first. Creation should be human first. The law should protect and require the consent and enthusiastic agreement of humans. And anything to do with any of this, including the algorithms that are made around these generative tools, should be transparent. I mean, I think that this is why, not to totally derail, but like what is happening with the WGA strike and the one clause around AI is going to be very, very formative to the way that the rest of all creative industries are operating. Absolutely. I think it's a pivotal yeah. case. Pooja, I know that um, we're, we were asking you to make predictions on this podcast and, and you indicated that you didn't want to uh, but if, if i were to ask but you, you don't get away with it that easily but, but we still have a little bit of time here so i'm going to ask you five years from now you open up spotify mm-hmm. or apple music mm-hmm. what does it look like not from a ui perspective but what kind of music are we listening to what's that experience like I i mean i work at pitchfork.com let's like use this as a caveat i am constantly going to be enthusiastically advocating for the return to taste (laughs) (laughs) and the return to to like self curation and being finicky about what you listen to because it is literally core to my entire life (laughs) um so i actually think there's going to be a rejection of the like broad brushing algorithm. I think people are getting more and more particular about having very clear specific tastes and also about not letting the computer trick them. So human taste is going to be the vinyl of tomorrow. I'm well the vi- you've seen this, right? Vinyl is booming. Right. Exactly. Um I really think that there is going to be a return to to something that feels a little bit more permanent and and tangible and that has personal affection to it. My other podcast co-host, Michael Calori on the Gadget Lab, he is definitely, he's a musician and he's an audiophile in addition to being a Wired editor. And we like to tease him on the show because his recommendation every week is like some obscure Swedish prog rock band we've uh-huh. never heard of. <laughs> uh-huh. But I I mean, I kind of love it, too, because I'm so normcore and I do listen to whatever Spotify serves up to me and probably a lot of pop music that I'm familiar with. And it's nice to have that that tasteful human influence of <laughs> try something you haven't listened to before and I can vouch for it. It's good. It seems if you're suggesting that we're going to value the thing that is created by humans, even if it's practically, <laughs> even if it's practically impossible to tell apart from the thing that's created by machines. A hundred percent. And I will just say, like, look at the way that ticket prices have moved in the last five years. Like tickets um, for live events. Tickets for live events, tickets for tours, tickets for concerts. There is such a desperation to be physically in a place um, surrounded by people who feel intimately connected to the same thing as you and having real personal access to an artist that people are paying insane amounts of money for it. But I think it's also just reflective of like this desperate want for human connectivity um, and being boots on the ground and feeling something real. Pooja, this has been an education. Thank you for joining us on Have a Nice Future. Thank you for having me. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, along with Michael Calore. Each week on Gadget Lab, we tackle the biggest questions in the world of technology with reporters from inside the Wired newsroom. We cover everything from personal tech. Because asking people to put a computer on one of the most personal and sensitive parts of your body is just like, it's a big bet. Broader trends in Silicon Valley. There are just so many laid off workers out there that workers just don't have a lot of power. And the exciting and terrifying world of AI. It's inevitable that the internet is going to be filled with like AI generated nonsense. And so he just thinks he might as well make some money playing a small part in a thing that he sees as unstoppable. Wired's Gadget Lab is here to keep you informed and to keep it real. The entire point of the phone should be on some level to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) New episodes of Gadget Lab are available weekly wherever you get your podcasts. So Gideon, you know what I'm still curious about? What music do you listen to? Oh, Lord. I find it really hard to explain. Open the Spotify Spotify app, do it live. No cheating. Spotify also finds it really hard to explain what I listen to. Basically, I grew up listening to exclusively classical music, and I still go back to a lot of the early 20th century composers like Shostakovich. Um, I have been getting into more contemporary minimalist classical like Arvo Pert and Niels Fram Mm. and people like that. And then basically, if you match a country with a genre like Ukrainian reggae or Nigerian funk or uh, Vietnamese jazz, I usually like that. That's exactly what I would picture for you. Classical, but also beautifully esoteric. Oh, you say the sweetest things. (laughs) Well, you are my boss. (laughs) What about you? What do you listen to? I'm opening my Spotify right now. And I can tell you that, um, okay, I was listening to Miss Anthropocene this weekend, as well as Art Angels, because I was trying to get into the Grimes vibe. I listened to the new track that was dropped by Beyonce and Kendrick Lamar called America Has a Problem. And then this is this is a little bit embarrassing. There's something called my Peloton playlist, because if you are on Peloton and you enjoy a song while you're working out and all those endorphins are flowing, you can just heart it on your Peloton and then it automatically sends it to your Spotify and creates a playlist for you. So there are all these songs that I hear sometimes on Spotify where I'm like, why did I like this song? And then I realize it's because I was just drunk on endorphins while I was working out and thought it was a good song and actually it wasn't. Wow. But that's that's the Peloton playlist. So you're, you're biologically conditioned to your music. That's something. In some ways, Yeah. Well, now I feel like we both have a little bit more insight into each other's psyches, because as Pooja said, music really is a very personal and human experience. Yes, though, I'm still trying to figure out what it reveals about me. I like the, I like the classical, but esoteric. I'm going to use that line. Anyway, if you want to have better music taste than Lauren and me, you should definitely give the Pitchfork Review a listen. That is Pooja's podcast, and new episodes come out every Thursday. Thanks for listening to our podcast in the interim. Have a Nice Future is hosted by me, Lauren Good. And me, Gideon Litchfield. If you like the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to new episodes each week. You can also email us at nicefuture at wired.com. Tell us what you're worried about, what excites you, any questions you have about the future, and we'll try to answer them with our guests. Have a Nice Future is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. 
Danielle Hewitt and Lena Richards from Prologue Projects produce the show. See you back here next Wednesday. And until then, have a nice future. If you enjoyed that conversation, check out more episodes of Wired's podcast, Have a Nice Future. New episodes drop each week.